Again, this morning we're in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. The word of the Lord says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Lord God, I love this letter so much because what it does for us is it unpacks for us your grand and cosmic plan for all creation, for things in heaven and things on earth. And yet it gives us the good news of Christ and what you have done for us through him as partakers of that plan. Help us this morning to have our minds and our hearts expanded so that we can comprehend just the fullness of your plan. And yet help us to truly be people as we sang and as Andrew pointed us to, that, that behold you and savor you as God. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we walk through the book of Ephesians this morning, uh, we are walking through what scholars call the crown of Pauline theology. Because in large measure, it summarizes in its six chapters sort of the, these main themes that you will see all through Paul's letters. Now, personally, when I talk about Ephesians with people, I describe it like Tang. How many of you remember Tang, right? Yeah, right? That, that orange kind of sour, powdery drink Again, if you don't know what tang is, it's powder, very intense, very sour. You take a scoop, you mix it with water, drink it. It's kind of like Kool-Aid, right? But it's very intense. And now imagine taking a scoop of that and just tossing it back in your mouth, no water, right? And just trying to chew on that and trying to, like, get that down. The, the flavor is very intense. It makes your eyes water very difficult to get through. Ephesians is sort of like that. Now, it is so dense and intensely packed with theological truth that on the one hand, it is very beautiful and it's very majestic. Like, you can't read the book of Ephesians and not just see the beauty of God just displayed in Christ. And yet, on the other hand, it is so packed and there is so much that Paul is saying in these uh, six chapters that it can be hard to understand like all of the nuances of exactly what it is that he's trying to communicate. Right? So that's why it's kind of like, like Tang. Now, as far as authorship goes, again, despite some modern criticism in the 20th and 21st century, most scholars do agree that Paul is the author, and they believe that he wrote it 
to the Ephesian church sometime around AD 62. And in AD 62, Paul at this time would have been in prison in Rome. Uh, he is writing to a church made up of predominantly Gentiles, which are basically, that's a way of saying non-Jews. Uh, and however, based on Paul's preaching in the Ephesian synagogue in Acts 19, 8 through 10, and then also based on Ephesians 2, as we will see, there were probably Jews in this church as well. Now, if you spend any time in Paul's epistles, usually when Paul's writing to a church, he's usually writing to address some sort of problem. Right? There's something, there's something happening in the church, and Paul's like, okay, I've got to write a letter, I've got to correct these guys because this is happening. That's usually what he's doing. But when you look at Ephesians, most scholars agree that that's not what he's doing here. There actually isn't, and there at least seemingly is no singular problem or issue to which Paul is writing in this particular letter. However, that doesn't mean that there isn't a main message or a main idea that he's trying to communicate, because there is. In fact, we find Paul's main idea laid out in the verses we opened with, where he writes this in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. He says, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And it's right here. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The main thing that Paul wants this church to understand is that God's overarching plan in creation is to unite everything in and to Christ. This is the message that this book opens with, and it's the message that he carries through all six chapters of the book of Ephesians. And we can see it clearly in this outline. So chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, it's all about a new creation people formed and united in Christ. Right? Their spiritual blessings and unity with Christ in Ephesians 1 through 2.10, and he talks about spiritual blessings in Christ and new life in Christ. And then in 2.11 through 3.21, there's, there's the mystery and unity of Christ's people, that we are one in Christ, and then there's the mystery of Christ and his people revealed in 3, 1 through 20. And then the last three chapters are all about what it looks like to live as a united people in Christ. And then there's all of the things that Paul calls his people to, to walk in unity, to walk in holiness, to walk in love, to submit to one another, um, and how, those relate, how that plays out in the relationships of wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. Then a call in Ephesians 6 to prepare for spiritual warfare, and then final greetings in 6, 21 through 23. And with this outline in mind, we're actually going to walk a similar path this morning as we look at Christ's unifying work in our lives as believers, his unifying work in all creation, and then finally, how we are to live in light of the unifying work that he's done. And so this morning, we're going to begin kind of looking at the unifying work that God has done in our lives as individual believers. And that's the first point. That Jesus reconciled and united us to himself. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I want to ask, how many of you are consumers of the fast food chain Wendy's? Any of you eat Wendy's? Hey, this is better. This was better than first service. There was like one person, or at least one person who admitted it, right? I think Wendy's is great. If you're not a consumer of Wendy's, you're missing out, okay? But if you are a consumer of Wendy's, there is a long-standing tradition of taking a Wendy's fry and dipping it in a Wendy's Frosty. And a Wendy's Frosty is basically, it's, it's very, it's like a very thick ice cream shake. And it's one of those where you can like tip it upside down and it's not, it's not going to fall out. Okay. And now I don't know about you, but at first glance, like when I first heard about this, like dipping like this hot fried potato strip, like in this ice cream shake, I was like, I don't think that's going to be very good, but it is. It, it's really good. And two seemingly opposite foods, they unite to make this amazing, salty, and sweet confection of goodness. And, and if you're still a doubter, somebody, somebody has done the work to scientifically prove why it's good. So you can go online and you can look behind, like, look up the science of the Frosty Fry, right? And there is science to explain, like, why it works. Someone way smarter than me did that. So it's very cool. But as great as the union of Fry and Frosty is, there is an even greater union that eclipses all the other examples that we could come up with of unions. And it's the union that was inaugurated and fulfilled in Christ when he reconciled and united us to himself and made us his people. But this union, it's more than what we just talked about. It's more than than two seemingly opposite objects coming together to create something good and new like the frosty fry. Instead, what God did through Christ was to literally change who we are, to make us something new so that we could be with him. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 makes it clear that apart from Christ, we were spiritually dead in the sin in which we were living and we were following Satan, who was called the prince of the power of the air. We did whatever felt good to us, and even though it dishonored God and in the very essence of our nature, we were children of wrath who deserved eternal punishment from God. As it says in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so this is who we were, and this is where we were headed. But then something happened, and we see it right in verse 4 of Ephesians 2. Two words that are some of the best words in the Bible when it says, but God. But God. Our triune God looked upon us living out our sin nature and on the path to destruction. But instead of hating or despising us because he hates sin and evil, it says that he is moved by the great love with which he loved us. Think about that. Instead of despising us, God hates sin, 
he hates evil, he could and should despise us. But it says instead that he loved us. Or he, that he's moved by the great love with which he loved us. And because he had such a great love for us, even though we clearly didn't deserve it, and even though we were dead in our sin, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on our behalf and to take our sin upon himself. And when we look to scripture, scripture tells us that at that moment, a great exchange took place. That Jesus took our sin nature and the wrath of the Father upon himself, and in exchange, he gave us freedom from the penalty and power of sin, and he gave us his righteousness and right standing with the Father. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We went from being, by nature, children of wrath to being new creations with a new nature of righteousness with God. And the result of this transaction, according to Ephesians 2, is that we are given a new and everlasting life just like Christ. And we are now seated with him, it says, in the heavenly places. We are now and forever united with Christ. And right now, right now, can and are experiencing the blessings of that union, of being seated with him in the heavenly places. As it says in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessings like adoption, hope, peace, joy, new life, and fellowship with God, those are ours as we wait for the coming time when we will experience the riches of his good grace and power in an eternity with him. And if you're here this morning and you have not put your trust in Christ as the one who can save you from the power and penalty of sin, as the one who can make you a new creation, and as the one who can give you a new and everlasting life with him, I urge you, Come to him. Come talk to me. There are, there are other people in this room that would love to talk to you. You could talk to Andrew as well. We would love to help you understand what it means to have new life in Christ, to be made a new creation, and to have this hope of an eternity with him. But if you're here and you're a believer this morning, I want to urge you. I want to urge you to rest and rejoice in the reality that your union with Christ is complete. And all the benefits, all the benefits of that union, those are yours today. But also realize that Jesus came to do more than merely save and unite individual sinners to himself. His plan is bigger than that. Instead, he came not just to save individual sinners, but to create a whole new people group. And that's our second point for this morning, that Jesus created a new unified people. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth or citizenship of Israel and stranger to the covenants of promise. Those are God's covenants and promises made to Israel, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself was our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And those are the the requirements of the law. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now before I get into these verses, if you didn't feel it already, uh, scholars believe that this is one of if not the most theologically kind of packed passage in the whole New Testament. And we could spend a ton of time unpacking all of the elements of the law, the ordinances, the commonwealth, and the covenants of promise, and what all of that means, right? But we don't have time to do that this morning. However, even though we don't have time to do that, I do believe that that a simple reading of the text will actually give us a decent idea of what Paul is talking about. So we know, as I said at the beginning, that Paul has written this letter predominantly to Gentiles or non-Jews. And they would be a part of the church in Ephesus, which contains both Jews and Gentiles. Not only that, but we already know, in in point one, we already know that Jesus has done a work in the lives of individual people, both Jews and Gentiles, so that we could be reconciled and united to him. That's the work that God has done for us as individual sinners. But now he begins this section not by focusing on their relationship or union with Christ, but by focusing on their relationship with the Jews themselves. He says that these Gentiles in the flesh, which are basically non-Jews by birth, that they were called the uncircumcision by the Jews. Can you, be a, can you imagine being called the uncircumcision, by the way? Right? Somebody's like, mm, you're the uncircumcision. Doesn't sound great, right? But they did this because circumcision was a pretty big deal to the Jews. In fact, that was the visible sign that set them apart as the people of God. And Gentiles, on the other hand, weren't circumcised, and so Jews didn't like them a whole lot. They saw them as lesser people, and they used that derogatory term, uncircumcision, as a way to show that they're better. And the point here is that they're has existed a hostility, anger, and animosity between the Jews and Gentiles for a a pretty long time. Also, because Gentiles were not part of national Israel, they didn't have or understand the promise of the Messiah to come, they were not citizens of national Israel, and they didn't have the covenants and promises of God, which means that they didn't have any hope of a Messiah. They, had no, they didn't know about that. They didn't know that there was such thing as like the Messiah to come or new life in God. They knew none of that. And they were separated from God, which means that they were also separated from the Jews themselves. But then in Ephesians 2.13, that all changes. It says this. It says, but now in Christ, now in Christ Jesus You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And now, of course, Paul has in mind here this being brought near to Christ and obviously their union with him. 
But here's the amazing thing. The Gentiles being brought near and united with Christ, it also did something else. It unites them with all of those Jews who are also believers in Christ. And so think about this. Two people groups, former enemies, Jews and Gentiles, in Christ are brought together and are now brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God. Can you think of any other place in history where that happens? Where two seemingly opposite groups who hated each other are now, now call each other brothers and sisters and family of the living God. As it says in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, again, the requirements of the law, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, Jews and Gentiles becoming one, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So think about how this applies to us today. Now, I, I don't think I don't think we have any former messianic Jews in here, right? I don't, I don't, I don't think. I don't think I've missed that anywhere in, in the people coming to La Crescent Free. But what I do think that we have is I actually think that we have one of the weirdest conglomerations of people that I've ever been a part of. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, don't get upset at me for saying that. Like, I don't mean that in a mean way or a bad way at all. But think about this, right? We have blue-collar workers. We have white-collar workers. We have doctors, construction workers, teachers, factory workers, old, young, introverts, extroverts, conservatives, liberals, car people, tech people, Doctor Who nerds, MMA bros, anime lovers, history buffs, Packers fans, Vikings fans, a few Bears fans, uh, Hikers, bikers, runners, readers, etc. And I bet if we spent time, like if we, we could spend time like going through all of our differences and we could make this huge exhaustive list of what separates us. And the truth is that this weird group of people, that if it wasn't for Christ, we probably wouldn't get along very well. But God, in his goodness and mercy, and by his power, he broke down the dividing wall that exists between us. And he united us on the most fundamental level. He united us as his new people who are new creations united in Christ. No longer do we see each other as strangers or enemies or as people standing in the way of each other's desires or progress. Instead, we must now see each other as brothers and sisters, as a family who is willing to lay down our lives for one another as Christ has laid down his life for us. It's a family where we find both acceptance and peace with Christ and with one another. But this family doesn't merely exist so that we can find acceptance or that we can have friends. Those those things, 
I think are, are very important. God wants those things for us. But instead, God has brought us together for a, for a greater and more grand purpose. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I hope you can see that this is why we gather together. This is why we fellowship with one another. And this is the promised work that God is doing in and through us. That he has made us a unified, new creation people in Christ so that we would grow together into a temple, a dwelling place for God, where he would be seen, adored, where he would be praised and feared and believed. In this way, we are meant to be the visible manifestation of Christ and his kingdom, not just to one another, but also to the world. And now I could stop the sermon right here. And I've given you enough. There is so much here about our union with Christ, our union with one another, us being the visible manifestation of his greatness and glory to the world. Like we could just stop there and ponder that and we would never exhaust the riches of what's there. But his unifying work and his plan, it is much bigger than that. It goes beyond us as individuals. It goes beyond us as his people. And it extends beyond us to all creation, both in heaven and on earth. And that's the third point for this morning, that Jesus unites all things in himself. And these are the opening verses from Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Falling off there. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. How many of you have ever used a... Um, a portable camcorder, right? Yeah, if you were an adult sort of pre-smartphone, right, you remember using these camcorders, and one of the things that they had on them is they had a zoom function. Now, I get it. You're going to be like, Pastor Ryan, smartphones have zoom functions. I get it, but it's not the same, right? Because on a camcorder, when you would use that zoom function, like as you're taking a video, you could do like this slow zoom in, right, on a specific thing, but then also you could do this slow zoom out. If you ever watched America's Funniest Videos, they did it all the time, right? The slow zoom in on a specific funny thing or the slow zoom out to see this funny picture kind of that's happening in the, in the whole scene. And as we've been going through Ephesians this morning, this message is meant to be that slow zoom outward, right? And it's the slow zoom outward of God's great and grand plan. And we started with kind of the close, with God's plan for uniting individual people to himself. And then we started to zoom out 
and then moved out to see that God was actually reconciling a a new and united people to himself and then to one another. But then now we're at that place where the Zoom kind of goes full. right? We get the full picture where we get to see what God is doing, that his plan for the whole of creation is to unite everything in Christ. As it says, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now that word unite in Ephesians 1.10, it can be a little confusing. Like what, what does that actually mean? And that word actually means this. It means to sum up or to bring something to a main point. To sum up or bring something to a main point. And really, this is very easy to see that the main point that Paul wants us to understand, that the main point of everything in all creation is Christ. The main point of everything in all creation is Christ. Peter O'Brien says it this way in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, God's summing up of these entities, things in heaven and things on earth, in Christ is his act of bringing all things together in and under the rule of Christ. He then goes on to say, Christ is the one in whom God restores harmony to the universe. Christ is the one in whom God restores harmony to the universe. And we've already seen, right, God's done this for his people, that we are both united with Christ in heavenly places, and we are united to each other. But he is also doing this. He is doing a cosmic work to put all things under his rule. And this includes all earthly powers, and it includes all spiritual powers. Look with me at the following verses. Ephesians 1, 19-23 says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All the spiritual forces in the heavenly places, whether good or bad, and all earthly powers and entities, including political powers, oppressive earthly leaders, tech giants, billionaires, and the church, are right now under the rule and reign of Christ. And he is doing a work that one day, it's going to culminate when he returns And all things will be reconciled to him. And we will live under his rule and reign in the harmony of the universe. Think about that. The harmony of the universe will be restored. Look at Revelation 21, 1 and 2. This great picture of that restoration. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. I hope that excites you this morning. I hope and pray that it gives us the confidence to trust that our triune God, he actually knows what he's doing. And that there is a cosmic plan that we get to be a part of that is far greater than anything, anything we could imagine. And everything that God has for us from this day forward is a part of fulfilling that plan. So then, all of the toil, all of the heartache, all of the strife, all of the struggle of life under the sun, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, is wholly and fully meaningful in the scope of that plan. It is not meaningless. So now we have the full picture. We have been united in Christ and to one another as his new creation people so that we would show the world his greatness as he continues his work of restoring harmony to the universe. And so if that's our job, right, if that's our job, how do we do that? How do we actually live that calling out? And that's our last point for this morning. Point four, that we must live as a new unified people in Christ. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Just as the first three chapters of Ephesians are packed full of the theological realities of unity, chapters four through six, it's full of the practical realities of how do we actually live that out. And Paul begins to unpack these practical aspects of unity by calling us to live in a manner worthy of the calling in Christ. This includes things like being humble, being gentle, being patient, loving one another despite our weaknesses and failures. And he wants us to do this so that we will maintain the unity which the Spirit has created in us as he, through Christ, knit us together as his people. Again, we are to love and serve one another so that people would look at us and see and believe that there is a real, united, and glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? In fact, this is put more simply in John 13, 35 by Jesus when he said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God's plan is that Jesus would be seen in us. What I want to do in our time left this morning is I want to give you a quick snapshot. There's so much in Ephesians 4 through 6. Unfortunately, I can't unpack it all. I've got basically five minutes left. But what I want to do is I want to give you a quick snapshot of Ephesians 4 through 6 
in the ways that Paul is calling us to display who our, who our God is as we live out this attitude of love and service to one another. And so I've kind of I put it on slides here so you can see it as we go through it. So here's what Paul calls us to. He calls us to use our gifts to build up the body of Christ until Christ returns. It's Ephesians 4, 7 through 14. To speak the truth in love so that we build each other up in faith. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. To deal with our anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. To do our work honestly and give to those in need. Ephesians 4, 28. To watch what we say so that our words build each other up. Ephesians 4, 29. We must let go of bitterness, anger, and malice and must be quick to forgive each other. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. We're called to run away from sexual immorality, crude joking, and foolish speech in Ephesians 5, 3 through 4. We must not become partakers in the works of evil and must seek to do what pleases the Lord in Ephesians 5, 7 through 10. We must seek to be wise and make the best use of time in Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. We must submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in Ephesians 5, 21. Wives then are called to submit to their husbands, and husbands must sacrificially love their wives in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Children are called to honor and obey their parents, and parents, and it says especially fathers, uh, should not provoke their children to anger, but build them up in the Lord, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And then I get that Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, it actually talks about slaves and masters, but I chose to put workers and bosses because it's the closest kind of relationship we have in our context. That workers must obey their bosses as servants of Christ, and bosses must lead their, lead their workers as servants of Christ, knowing that they are not serving themselves, serving themselves but him. That's Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And we seek to do all of this, all of it remembering that our strength and the power to live this out, it comes from Christ, right? We can't do this on our own. As it says in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are needy of him and his spirit in us to be able to display his greatness as a new creation people. And then ultimately to be able to stand against the spiritual forces that are going to come against us as we try to do that. But the beautiful message of Ephesians is that in Christ, man, the battle is already won. The unity of God's people, creation, and the universe, they are already achieved, even though we don't, we don't see it yet. Everything at this moment, it's under the rule and the reign of Christ. That's exciting. That is so good. And so my call to each of us this morning is to live as a new unified people in Christ, to love one another, serve one another, and use your gifts and your words and your relationships to build up the body of Christ. Because our work of love and service here on earth, it has eternal value and purpose. For God is using it to make himself known and to spread his kingdom until that day, until that day that he returns, and that harmony, that harmony that we long for comes to fruition. The universe, all is made right again in Christ. And on that day, our faith will become sight. 
we will experience the full blessings of our union with him and with each other. And we will receive the full and everlasting joy of our salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, it is so amazing to just take this grand view and to look at what you have done for us in and through Christ. To see that through Christ you have done a great work of paying the debt that we owed for our sins so that we could be united to you. To see that you have done this amazing work through Christ to make us this, this new unified people who are one with you, but yet also get to call each other brothers and sisters of you, the living God, and of one another. And yet at the same time to know that as good as that is, it is part of a greater work that you are doing to sum up all things in Christ, to bring all things under his rule, and to restore the harmony of the universe in him that one day we are going to get to celebrate in and, and, and be a part of the fulfillment of that and actually see it like with our eyes. Lord, that is so good. And I pray for each of us that that will give us hope. That will give us hope to continue to walk in faith, to believe you. And even though, Lord, it's hard. It's hard to live out our faith in the world. It's hard to live out our faith within the body of Christ, that it will spur us on by your spirit to do that good work, to use our gifts for the building up of the body, to, to speak words, to build one another up, to use our relationships to just show the world your love and your goodness and your greatness. And that we will live with the knowledge knowing that that is not meaningless, but it is wholly purposeful to accomplish your plans and your will for your creation until that day we return. We just pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.